From ACAST Studios and Western Sound, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 9, Too Too Many. Joe, tell me about the money. What was it like having all that money? Okay, so one time I had $50,000 in a sports bag underneath my bed. And I decide, you know what? I want to see what this money looks like. Oh, all stacked up. And I would, and periodically, I would, I would take it out and count it. And I would count it on my bed. So I'd count all the money. I'm excited. Oh, look at that. It's 50000 plus. And then I said, like, oh, fuck it. So I slide it all around the bed and move it all around. And I, and I, I make it so my whole bed's money. And it's not a lot of money. Like, it's not thick. It's not like I'm, you know, it's like a pillow of money. But it's enough to spread all over the place. And so I spread it out. And... Um, I decided I'm going to do that cheesy thing where you lie down in it. Like you've seen in every movie or TV show where people like get all this money. You know, I'd been raised poor. It's a lot of fucking money to look at. And so I lie down on it. I'll fall flat on it. Bah, just drop on it. Flip over. And I'm lying on it. And very quickly, I start realizing, oh, shit, I think I stepped on shit. Because it's, I smell shit in my room. And I'm like, oh, how the hell I do that? Like a real pungent fucking craps like someone chunked a douche right there so I get up and immediately I look at my bottom of my shoes no shit I look around like well, where did, what, what is that smell of shit and I can't find it and it's driving me crazy and I'm smelling my fingers and I realize oh oh there's a little faint something there and I look down at the money and I have a realization oh shit might be the money I get on my knees, I bend forward, put my face all around it, and like, oh, fuck, yes. It's the money, man. The money, because people wipe their ass, and they go and they pull money out, and they just, their hand, they just dirty fucking grubby hands on all this money. Imagine all the people whose greasy hands have been on this thing, right? It smells like someone dumped a grumpy right there, man. It was terrible. It was like, oh, fuck, this money's gross. It was surprising, man. Money stinks. Money fucking stinks. Part one. Who? Me? After all those banks, all the banks we've been hearing about at the beginning of each episode, plus all the banks we heard about in episodes seven and eight, after all those banks, I'm sure you've been wondering... How does it end? How far can one bank robber go? Well, what we're about to hear is the beginning of the end, but it's not really an ending. It's sort of the beginning of a new phase in Joe Loya's life. It starts at a Bank of America. Of course, it's in a parking lot of a mall in a suburb of L.A. called Cerritos. So a couple of interesting notes about this bank. One, I was able to rob two women that day where I robbed one and then the other teller next to her leaned over to ask her a question. I was like, send the money over too. So like she sent money over and <laughs> I, was able to, I was able to rob two. So it was like really aggressive. The other interesting thing about here is that into this bank I wore um, two sweatshirts to bulk me up, to make me look bulky. So when I go in there, baseball cap, whatever, and I rob them, I look 
big. I'm bulked up from the sweatshirt and stuff. When I run to my car, I get in the car, I drive away from here, I pull over to the side of the street, and I take off all these clothes. Underneath it, I have a pair of shorts. I have a UCLA tank top. I have a, a, a UCLA hat, hat on now. I take all my clothes off, and now I'm wearing sneakers, not or topsiders, not the, the other shoes I was wearing. So I got more of like a collegiate look thing. And I put all the clothes in the bag and I throw it in a rain ditch. So I get on the freeway and as I get on the freeway and I go over to the to the fast lane, I almost crash into three sheriff's cars. I almost literally almost crash in it because I'm not looking in my mirror. I just don't see I see it's empty. But they're coming on so fast that I, I just and I dodge them and I look ahead and I realize they're racing to where a helicopter is ahead in the freeway. I'm like, shit, I gotta get off the freeway. So I start pulling over off the freeway. And as I start pulling over off the freeway, I get off at the next off ramp and I turn right into traffic, right? I'm like, okay, cool, I just dodged a bullet. All of a sudden, sheriff cars are all around me. I don't know where they came from and they're all stopping and herky jerky and they're looking at everyone in the cars and I'm thinking, I'm good because I don't look like the guy who walked out of that bank. In fact, as soon as I feel the helicopters overhead, I open my sunroof so they can look in and they can say, I'm in shorts. I'm not even wearing pants. I don't feel like I look like that guy at all. So all that to say, I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving. And uh, cars, as I'm driving down the road on the right and left side, police cars are looking at me. They're just parked. And then as I would drive past them, they would join a crowd, growing crowd of cop cars behind me. So it's like they're looking at me. And then as, as I pulled past them, they would then turn into traffic from the left and the right. I'm driving. I'm just chilling. I'm just relaxing. I'm just taking my time, being easy. And then... I mean, what are you thinking about all these cop cars behind you? I'm thinking, why are they... Why do they think it's me? I have no clue. But I do know, I'm dri- as I'm driving, there's now 15, 20 cars behind me. It's me. They've isolated me. And there's a car pulls up to my left, and he looks at me. And I look at him, and I just keep driving. I call, another car pulls up to my right. Looks at me. Do they have sirens going? Like, is it? No, no. they're just following. They're just me. following you. All right. Then the guy pulls up to the right of me, and then he pulls behind, and now they're all following me. And then the helicopter's in front of me, and he starts going low, and they put their lights on, and they yell, "Pull over!" So I feel like, okay, this is a racist rush to judgment, <laughs> you know, because there's no way that I look like the guy. And I'm thinking, I'm going to fucking fight this in court because why are they stopping me? There's no reason to stop me. They just targeted a Mexican dude. That's the way I'm thinking about it, right? So I pull over. They all have stepped out of their cars. They got guns pointing at me. I could see it in my mirrors. I'm not going anywhere. Helicopters in the road in front of me low. So I know that, okay, I'm not getting away. And this is going to be what it's going to be. And I start yelling, why'd you stop me? And the helicopter isn't going. He's like, shut the fuck up. Put your hands behind your head. And I'm like, why'd you stop me? Like, I said, shut the fuck up. And that takes us back. And the whole time he's giving me instructions to walk back, to walk to my left in the middle of the street, to put my arms out, to let, get on my knees, to fall forward. Everything, I keep interrupting him. Why'd you stop me? Because I'm convinced this is an illegal stop. And at that point, I feel them running at me, and I'm laid out on the on the ground, my legs open, my arms wide, my face down, and they jump on me. I mean, they jump on me, and they're they're like mad at me. 
and I feel guns on me. I feel knees on me. They're grabbing my hands, trying to put them. And one guy grabs my head. Now remember, they're on me, and trying to pull my arms back. And I'm not resisting. I'm like, I'm fucked, right? So he pulls my head back, and I swear to God, I thought he's gonna choke me up because I can barely breathe. And he leans into my ear and says, "You want to know why we stopped you, cocksucker?" We stopped you for being ugly and Norwalk. <laughs> so, and you know what I'm thinking the whole time? Like, that's kind of fucking clever. <laughs> These sons of bitches, that's kind of fucking clever. So I'm seated there and they put me on a cop car in the back of a cop car. They now approach my car with their guns drawn, like, oh, I'm running at the car. And uh, not running, but, you know, coming together. There's a helicopter overhead. Is there someone in there? They don't know. And when they go in, they see that nobody's in there. They open the door. They reach in the back. They pull out the bag, and they hold up the bag of money like a prized fish. And they says, got it! And I look at it, and the guy says to me, who has the cop is in the front seat, he says, you're a dumb fuck, man. He says, we caught you with the transmitter and the money. And then it made sense. They were triangulating. They... They would see me coming at them, and their little dashboard would signal it's ahead of you. And then as soon as I passed them, it'd say it's on to your right. It's on. To, now it's behind you. And then they would pull in behind me, and they could just they could they identified my car because they all had this thing telling them where where the transmitter was. They bring the two women I had robbed, and they bring them to where I am standing on the sidewalk, and then make them look at me. Well, I did the, I just turned around to my left, to my right, and they told me, don't look at them. And I, and it was, I wasn't trying to break the rules, but when I looked to look straight ahead and they were there, I could see from the side of my eyes that their heads were saying, no, that's not the guy, mm. right? So I knew I had play. I knew that these women did not recognize me as the guy who had just robbed them within the last half hour. So they can only arrest me for possession of stolen property. So, but you're arrested. You're taken to LA Sheriff Station, not too far away in Linwood, California. Of course, we know from the first episode that you've been in jail before. You know the drill. What was your plan this time? I'm in a holding cell with other criminals who've been arrested. Unlike the first time I went in a holding cell, where I was like, <laughs> scared, and like, oh, fuck, I'm going away. I don't know. I'm like, oh, fuck, I know what to do. Boom, all right, I got on the phone. Paul, get rid of all photos in my house. <laughs> like, I feel like the FBI is going to go to my house, and they're going to get photos, and they're going to see all my friends. They're going to see photos of me, and they're going to compare the photos of me to the photos they've taken from all the surveillance cameras. So I don't want to match from any of them at all. I said, get all my photos out of the house. Get whatever cash you can find in the house. And go take it to Aunt Gloria and have them come down here and bail me out. So I got 12 hours. And I'm waiting to get bailed. I'm waiting to get bailed. I'm waiting to get bailed. In that time, I get pulled out of the holding cell. I got taken to a room. And in walks this real burly guy, Special Agent Cordes. Puts a notebook down, opens it up. And he just starts asking me questions. What's your name? First name? Middle name? Uh, last name? How old are you? Where'd you go to school? Just basic information. 
They get all this information from me, and it's not an interrogation. It's just he wants to assess me. And I'm polite, and I'm articulate, and I'm not trying to be friendly with him, but I'm, I'm, he's getting a read on me like, this guy doesn't look like bank robbers at all. Nothing about me says bank robber. But he suspects I had something to do with it because I was caught with the money. And then he finally says, so the, the, the women who were robbed say you didn't rob the bank. You're not the one who robbed them. But how did you get a hold of that money? Because that's the bank money. I said, man, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and I proceeded to lie and tell him that, um, you know, I went out to go shop at Macy's in that mall near where the bank was. And I got out and I realized, oh, shit, I left my wallet in the car. And I go back to my car and I see this real big burly man wearing exactly the outfit I was wearing in the bank. <laughs> I described me saying this big burly man runs out and he... um throw something underneath my car, and I want to know, what the fuck? And I pull it out, and it's all this money. So I'm like, fuck it, and I drive away. Next thing I know, you know, Linwood Sheriff's pulling me over, and that, oh, wow. Totally plausible I story. I didn't do it. <laughs> totally plausible story. Now, here's the thing. He knows my record. There's, It's not like he knows he's dealing with somebody who's done this before, so he doesn't know exactly what to think, other than I don't look like a bank robber. That's, for, that's one thing he's sure of. He's been in the business long enough to know I don't look like it. But he's also knows... <laughs> Criminals are lying, sons of bitches. They will lie gratuitously. They will lie often and a lot. So um, that's that was my first introduction to him. So what happened? Was there like an arraignment? They drive me to downtown to the federal courthouse. And while we're driving there, he says, we know who you are now. He said, Mr. Joel, Steve, <laughs> we know who you are now. We're going to put you in court and it's not going to look good for you. We're at uh, 16 Banks and County. We know who you are. Believe me. I go to court. Man, they they did that dramatic thing where they pull something over and all of a sudden, ta-da, 16 pictures of a guy walking out of a bank in various clothing and, the, you know, the photos you've seen and a monk, you know, and a monk Mickey Mouse shirt, plaid shirt, suit, trench coat, fedora, all of it. Uh, 16 photos. This They're saying, we're, we're still counting, Your Honor. Um, uh, we will give him bail. Now, we can have a $100,000 bail. And apparently, Cordes had lobbied to get me, to, allowed me to get bail. For two weeks, we're trying to get bail. It takes a long time to clear my my aunt's house, to put it up. It just, it took a lot longer than I expected. It was almost two weeks to get it. So just, uh, I just want to explain a little bit, because we're kind of... There's some intricacies here that I don't know if the audience would know. So so you get bail, and the bail is... $100,000. $100,000. So that means, you know, the way bail works, that means you have to put up $100,000? No, you put up $10,000, but right. she has to put her home up as collateral. Okay, so, so she puts up 10000 and she says, for the other 90000 you can take my home for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that way, if you leave and don't come back if you run away to mexico or something like that they have the house she loses her home yeah and yeah. so your aunt is telling you that she's going to do this yeah and what are you thinking as she's telling you this honestly i think i'm thinking fuck this i'm not coming back i'll just give her money to replace the house <laughs> i'll hmm. rob i'll rob enough to pay, give her a new house but i'm not coming back i think i think there's certainly at one point i thought that and then we get I get out, I make bail, 
and I uh, proceed to rob five more banks. We'll be right back. Part two, collateral damage. So, Paul, what do you remember about the time after Joe had been arrested? I remember the phone call. I remember Joe called me um, and told me that he had been caught and that he was at the sheriff's station and that he needed to get a hold of my dad and they, they needed to put my Aunt Gloria's house up so that he could get out in three days. And that's what he was focusing on, is getting out in three days. I was his one phone call, and he knew I would, I would do what needed to be done to, to get that ball rolling, and that's what I did. How did you, um, how did you feel? Um, bittersweet. I was hoping that this escalation finally had reached its, its zenith, and it now was now going to be dealt with legally. You know, he... I was happy that he had been caught and there wasn't any, you know, he, there wasn't a shootout or anything like that. I was happy that he was caught, that he was in jail, that we knew where he was. Because there was like days where I didn't know where he was and he wouldn't come home and he was gone. And I didn't, you know, I would, wouldn't talk to him for two, three days. And so there was a relief part of it. There was, I was feeling mixed emotions, so many emotions. And um, I remember seeing him at the courthouse. I remember getting to the courthouse early and going up an elevator. And I remember the elevator opening and I remember them transporting Joe from one end of the hall to another and he had been shackled and he had like his hands in front of him. And I, and I wanna say that like he was shackled with his legs together too. So like he was just moving slowly and it was just so, I was just in such shock to see that picture and it's vivid absolutely heartbroken for me. I mean, it was just heartbreaking for me. I, I, you know, seeing your brother that you've loved all your life and gone through so much and then seeing him like that and it was just really, really difficult to see and really, really difficult to watch. And I don't think I had the skills at the time to to really handle it or, or process it appropriately. You know, that was really, really difficult for me. And um, he made bail. He made bail within a few, you know, within a few days. I do remember hearing from Brian that Joe's aunt had put up her home as collateral for bail. Brian was concerned that Joe was going to jump bail. This is Debbie Okada. We spoke with her back in episode seven. She was talking about how Joe spent his money when he was robbing banks. So now that Joe had been caught, she, her husband at the time, Brian, everyone was really worried about what Joe might do next. It was not a good time. It was the lowest ebb in our in our relationship. Joe was distant, and I think that he knew that I would not approve of the things that he was doing. Matter, I absolutely knew what he that he was robbing banks. I didn't approve of it. I told him I didn't approve of it, but um, there was really nothing I could do short of just strong arm strong arming him. And he was bigger than me anyway. So, yeah, it was a really sad time. I, I look back on that time period. And I just, it's a really sad time for the relationship. And if you look at on it uh, like a like a uh, like a graph, it would be it would be the low ebb of our relationship. It would be the time that he was robbing banks and the time that he spent, you know, 
really damaging our, our relationship as brother and brother. Things with all Joe's friends started falling apart. Here's Brian Okada. He's a chef, and he had hooked Joe up with a job at a restaurant while he was robbing. He's been my friend since I was 16. He was like a brother to me. You know, he's someone that I cared about, I loved as a brother. And so, yeah, I'm like, look, I'll help you. Um, Yes, I'll definitely help you. I think he did okay for a little while and then started disappearing again and wouldn't come into work. And I remember Brian being really angry about that, and he doesn't get very angry very easily, that, you know, he had tried to help Joe give him this new start, and there was disrespect and not meeting the basic expectations that you would come to work when you're scheduled. Well, he could easily get angry. He could easily blow up. There was one situation where he got angry. A busboy said something to him, and Joe didn't take it well. And uh, the guy walked around the corner, and Joe grabbed a knife that was on a table, walked up to him, put a knife up to his neck um, in a fit of rage. I was on the other side of the kitchen and just yelled at him, told him to put the knife down, and he snapped out of it, and he put the knife down and realized that he was doing something, obviously, that was just enraged that he uh, he reacted that way. And Joe, again, is a very charismatic person, and so Joe was very well-liked by everybody in that restaurant, even that busser. And so even when... Joe apologized to the guy and said, I'm sorry, that was just something that, you know, I just lost it. The guy was, you know, obviously he didn't do anything. He didn't press charges against him. He didn't get him fired. You know, nothing like that. He ended up fairly quickly robbing banks again. He had a court date that was like a month away. So he had like a whole month where he could be robbing banks. And then he wouldn't come home. And then that's when the FBI um, got involved with regards to um, putting a manhunt out for him. Um, they trailed a lot of his friends. They, because Joe and I looked a lot more alike at the time, they also trailed me for a bit of time. I would go to work, I would be outside, and these two guys would, you know, would be sitting outside in, in some nondescript sedan. <laughs> it was weak. <laughs> the FBI was so weak. But, yeah, it was like... These two, like, Hawaiian shirt type of guys sitting in this nondescript government car that were just really weak. And then they would park, you know, like I would drive home, they would drive home with me kind of thing. And then they'd be parked like half a block away. You know, they wanted to see if Joe was was contacting me or if Joe was going to show up at the house to pick up goods or or you know, replenish his, his, his clothes or whatever. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was smart on their part. You know, I mean, that was his home base. That's where Joe was living at the time. And, you know, um, but he was on the lam. Paul, I mean, you knew what he was doing. Why didn't you stop him? You know, I'm not still not sure that what if I would do anything different. I mean, I, I love my brother. Maybe I would intervene in a different way. Um, I'm ashamed that I didn't do more. And I'm ashamed that I didn't, um, that I didn't step up. And I think that that's another reason why I, I look on that time period as, as, 
is a period of time that uh, I failed as well. And I just, and I failed, I not only failed Joe, I failed myself. We'll be right back. Part three, it takes two. So I got arrested in Cerritos with a transmitter and my money. I go to jail. I'm in there for about two and a half weeks getting bail and getting all the money set up, whatever. It's a big pain in the arse for everyone involved. So I finally get out. Now everybody knows I was I was robbing banks all that time. When people asked me during that year, when they asked me, where did I get all my money? Why do I have so much money? I would always say, well, when I was a criminal the first time, I saved money. And when I got out, I have some money from previous crimes. I didn't tell anybody I was robbing banks. So a lot of people bought into that. And then now it was, the truth was out. I was robbing banks the whole time. Um, and I show up to work. And uh, my manager's like, oh, no wonder you had all those guys working on your time card. And I was like, yeah, right? I mean, you know, oh, well. Because hmm. she understood what I did to her, which was whenever I would go rob banks... I would have Clemente or some other guy who worked the night shift. I would have him work a double, work my shift. Now, the Crocodile Cafe would not pay those guys a wage to work a double shift, you know, time and a half. So they said, okay, you can have Clemente work for you, but you have to pay him out of your check. So when he comes here, he has to work on your time card. So when I would go rough bags, there was a time card at... The Crocodile Cafe that said I worked that shift because Clemente was working on my time card and I wasn't there. So in a way that you had an alibi. That was my alibi. But in the criminal justice system, nothing beats positive ID. So all those tellers who had been robbed for the 14 months, when the FBI went to them and they picked me out of a six pack, their positive ID beat my time cards. Now... I figure out, you know what? I'm not going to go to prison. And this is where me, I was already an asshole. I was just really bad. I was a bad boyfriend. I was a bad person in society. I was just a thief. It was kind of a shit. And I decided to like up my shit game by putting my aunt's house in jeopardy because my aunt put her house up for me to go on bail, my aunt. And uh, she loved me. And I was willing to risk it all. I didn't care. And so what I do is I get somebody who I used to play golf with, who resembled me. person was about four inches shorter than me. And this person was desperate for money. I always took him around, always paid stuff for him. I liked having him around. And it's like, you, you, you want to eventually get something like this? And he was like, yeah. And finally, when I come out of on bond, I go to this guy and say, hey, listen, I'll teach you how to do this and we'll split the money. He says, really? I said, yeah, but you have to do it exactly as I say. He's like, sure, because like I said, he had seen the loads of cash I had. So to him, he's thinking $30,000, dollars $50,000, he could be his. Well, I take him to go do it, go to Orange County somewhere. He goes into the bank after I tell him what to do. I park far away, you know, my, my ammo. 
he runs to the car i drive away we're going fast i'm all excited he's breathing hard it's like whoa this is great i don't have to rob banks i got a guy who can rob banks for me we'll split the money and like i can make some money here and we're driving i'm finally so how much you get he goes oh i didn't get nothing she told me no He said she told him no. And I was like, oh my God, this guy is so bad. So I pulled over. And I said, here's what happened last night. They came into your house. They went upstairs. They got your pants. They took your wallet out. They grabbed all your money. They got your money in that bank. In that teller station is your money. You have the right to go in there and basically take your money back. You have the moral right to go get that money. That's the way I, I, I try to pump them up for it. So I take them to this mall where they have a bank in the mall. I park. He goes inside. Whatever lame thing he's putting out, people are picking it up. Apparently, he was good enough to at least get some money from them because as soon as he hits that door, he's still holding the money in his hands and he's holding it to his chest. And when he pushes that door open, an eddy of air catches that money. The money goes flying everywhere, whirling in the air. And there's him trying to catch it out of midair. And I look at him and I'm thinking, what a fucking idiot. When you rob a bank, you've just done something terrible. You, you've done something violent. You've done something that people are a little afraid of. That's why they gave you the money. It's already been established. Lightweight danger. When you do this following it, all danger evaporates. And they're like, get him. He's a fucking idiot. And they treat you like they're ready to bully the hell out of you. Like you can't, They can't wait to get you. So I have to drive away. And as I'm driving away, I look back and he's running. And now it is a Benny Hill fucking skid. There's one dude and there's a crowd of people running after him out of the bank. I'm like, oh, shit. So I cross the street, this big boulevard out of the parking lot. And I park and I'm like, oh, come on, come on. And I'm looking in my rear view mirror and I see him coming. He runs. He jumps in the seat next to me. And he's so short that... All they see is one person in this car. It's important to the story. I'm too far for them to catch me. I'm too far for them to even see my um, license plate. And they vaguely make out that my car is a 911 Porsche. But it's not. That's what they say. Because the back looks like a 911 Porsche, but it's actually a Mazda RX-7. And it tries to come after us. But I'm in a fucking little RX-7. And I just I do sports car stat. And I take off. And I'm going so fast down this residential street. And it's a long residential street. So I'm picking up speed. I'm going fast. And then I see a dip coming. And because I'm a sports car, I'm low to the ground. So I brake and downshift. And I try to slow it down. I hit that thing going 80. And I fly in the air. And when I land, I land so hard that I think my car is going to fall. Like, I fell apart. It doesn't fall apart. But I know for sure... My oil pan is burnt. Yeah, I broke it. It busted. There's no way my oil pan is surviving this. I turn right. And now I'm out of this residential area into another big street. And there's like, there's um, an auto parts store there. So I said, get out of here. Get yourself back home. 
He jumps out and he goes into his auto zone. I turn right now, my car beep beep, and like I'm in danger. I jump out of my car, I cross the street back to this side of the street, and I go into a Sir George's smorgasbord. And a cop car comes up, slows down, puts his lights on in front of my car, comes up, puts his hand on the hood, he feels it's hot, there's smoke coming out of my car. (laughs) And I walk right through the kitchen, out the back door, and I hit an alley and I start running. And I'm running down this alley because my car is busted. I'm not getting back to my car. And now they know I'm in the area. I'm running out of there, I get out of there. I have my brother pick me up in Orange County, come home that night. So we, um, I was fortunate enough to be driving by right when they're raiding my house. And there's cops all over my house. They're all creeping in on my house because the FBI is now going to rescind my bail. They know I had something to do with that bank. Right? They think I actually robbed the bank. And as we drove, I could see police with their guns drawn sneaking up on my house around the back gate. Turn around. I called my dad. I said, hey, dad, what's up? Because I knew my dad was close to the FBI agent who was, you know, after me. They had kind of bonded. And I said, what's up? He says, turn yourself in, son. Turn yourself in. Special Agent Cordes called. He said, you robbed that bank. He knows you robbed that bank. I said, nope, did not rob that bank. Swear on mommy's grave. I did not rob that bank. He goes, really? I said, dad, I swear on mommy's grave. He goes, all right, let me call. Let me call Cordes. So Cordes tells my dad, hey, have Joe call me. So I call him and, I, and I, he said, hey, we found your car. I says, Cordes, I wasn't in that bank. I didn't rob that bank and I'm not going to turn myself in because it took me two weeks to get bond. And I don't want to wait another two weeks in there for your mistake. I was not in there. And he says, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do for you, Joe. I'm going to go look at the footage and I'm going to call, call me tomorrow and I'll tell you what I see. Now, banks, the way they're, because banks are designed, they could tell how tall you are by where you are on the counter, all those little signs in the lobby. That was before they even had like the strips that could tell you the size when you're height when you're walking out the door. There's all these markers in there they could tell where you sign the notes and all stuff. They could tell. The next day, um, I call him and he says, you need to talk to your lawyers, Joe. I said, really? He goes, yeah, because you have a double out there. This person's like four inches shorter than you. He says, so... I'm not going to talk to you about why your car was in the area, broke down, but I will not rescind your bond because that was not you. I said, thank you. I told you that. So I waited a couple of days. I went, you know, just hung out. And then I came back home and I'm here. I got my car parked out front. Now the Pasadena police two days earlier had been the ones who tried to break into my house. Now, There is no arrest warrant for me anymore. But the Pasadena police have not checked again that it's been rescinded. So I'm sleeping in that house. And all of a sudden, there's lights and helicopters and get out. And I'm pounding on the door and everything like that. And I'm like, we're coming out, coming out, coming out. out." I come out and this this place is just cop cars everywhere. They're doing a felony arrest. I'm, I'm wanted, armed and dangerous. You know, there was further concern. They're doing this arrest. And I'm like, you guys are stupid motherfuckers, man. You're not supposed to be arrested. This is a violation of my rights. 
And no, 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 no. I said, you better call the FBI agent right now. You better call your lieutenant, bring him over here, because there is no warrant out for me right now. There was two days ago, and there isn't any more. And they brought out my, me and my, my roommate. Brian had guns in there. And they come out, and they're like, we got guns! So I'm in a house with guns. I'm not supposed to be in a house with guns. All of this is wrong. They look at it as far as they're concerned. They're going to arrest me. They got me with guns. I'm wanted for bank robbery. And I'm sitting on this curb right here. And I'm, you're stupid motherfuckers. I keep telling them, right? Because what happened when I said, you better check and see if there's a warrant. Because that warrant doesn't work anymore. And like the lieutenant or one of them like perked up. And they said, wait, did anyone check to see that kind of thing? And they realized they did this whole thing and there was no more warrant. It was two days ago, but it's gone now. They finally get a hold of quarters. They get him out of bed. And he talks to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they're nodding. And he says, let me talk to Joe. So he gets me Joe, I don't have anything to do with this. We had a deal. I know, but it's not. And he like made them unhandcuff me. I stand on that porch right there. And they're all like coming out. They had to put the guns back. They could not arrest me for the guns because they illegally searched my house. There was no warrant. There's no reason cause for them to come in the house. I sat on the porch and talked shit to them, man. Like, dog them all the way out of here. Fuck you, motherfuckers. And, and they got in their cars and they were pissed at me. Fast forward a month later. And they got it so that Brian drives up one day, just real quick, runs in there, gets his golf clubs, comes here, jumps in, drives away, and right around the block, they pull a felony stop on him because they really wanted to get me. And at that point, what they didn't realize... These passing the police are so stupid. They didn't realize, but that morning, I'd been arrested already. <laughs> I was in custody. And Brian's like, you guys are some stupid motherfuckers, man. Joe's in custody already, man. They really wanted me so bad, they were never checking to see. <laughs> they were just always going, they were leading with the, like, bum rush Joe. Bum rush Joe. And so... Uh, I never got a chance to actually be arrested by them, but boy, they sure tried. They sure tried to get me. This is episode nine of The Bank Robber Diaries, Too Too Many. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leone. Production assistance is from Annette Ronhell. Mixing by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. There's a lot more info about the show on our website, thescorepodcast.co, and you can find out a lot more about Joe on his website, which is joeloya.ltd. He has his book for sale there. It's called The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell, and it's a memoir covering a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about on this show. You should go check it out. And next week, your questions. We're going to do a special AJA episode that's Ask Joe Anything. You can email your questions to us at thescore at western-sound.com or you can click the link on our website. Again, that's thescorepodcast.co. You can also DM us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is thescore.podcast. That's episode 10. Next week, your questions. Send them in and stay tuned. <laughs>